0: Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Willen Cunningham, coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center.
1: And I'm Michaela Stevens. It's February 18th. On today's show, we'll discuss the town hall sessions at USC today, focusing on improving the university's culture and learn the changes some schools have already made in response.
0: We'll go live to LAX where Air Force One just landed. What will the president do in California?
1: And answer why the Boy Scouts of America declared bankruptcy today. All that and more from where we are.
0: USC officials have been working overtime the last few years to address fallout from a series of scandals such as the Varsity Blues bribery scheme and a sexual assault allegations against a pair of campus doctors. The University's Culture Commission has been gathering feedback from faculty, staff, and students and released the results of its big cultural values poll in December. To get a better understanding of the results, the Commission is holding a series of follow up meetings around campus, including one at Annenberg this morning. Isaiah Murta reports Show of hands, how many of you participated in University Town Hall? Okay, great, great. So a, a few of you, which is actually good because on top of those town halls, we also have another 38 town halls that are
2: specific to the immediate environment. This
3: morning's discussion was one of more than 150 meetings that USC's Culture Commission planned to help it decipher the results of last fall's big poll. The poll collected nearly 20,000 responses. That means more than a quarter of the USC community responded. The released results showed a lot of room for change, Respondents called the current culture bureaucratic and budget-driven, and they said they want the university to be more transparent and ethical.
4: We need to really understand what those poll results say.
3: That's Deborah Lawler. She's a senior associate dean.
4: And then we need to to have the discussions to really understand what the meaning is behind all of those words that showed up. There is an incredible amount of consistency, which gives us a great starting off point for us to really understand and and to move forward.
3: Moving forward in the immediate future means more meetings until April, when the commission will release a second report on what the meetings revealed. And in the long term, the culture journey timeline the commission laid out says that it will, quote, continue to align and reinforce sustainable values and behaviors.
4: It's important to, you know, to continually be looking at this. This isn't just a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. It's important that we are continuing to improve upon our systems and to grow as an institution
3: for Annenberg Media I'm Isaiah Murta.
1: Michaela
0: how do you feel about the way the university was responding to these scandals
1: you know I'm pretty happy I do think that they've been very consistent in how they're responding to everything I went to an undergrad institution where there were a lot of sexual assault scandals and they didn't really do anything in response so I am pretty satisfied with how the school is responding. What about Mm you?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, my school had its own fair share of those things, but it it Mm -hmm. reminds me a little bit. I I went to Oberlin. It's a liberal arts school in Ohio. Mm I think we've heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me a little bit of its own identity crisis, its face this past year. There was this Kerbaka with some students protested, Mm -hmm. uh, this local bakery and. Well, long story short, the school ended up getting sued for tens of millions of dollars, almost bankrupting it. So now the president is going around on a tour across the country asking alum for their own input.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, it's crazy.
1: The School of Cinematic Arts also just held its value polls town hall, where school officials shared results and discussed ways to move forward. The school earlier this month added two mental health counselors to its staff, Both counselors will be available Monday through Friday for one-on-one counseling sessions. Students can make appointments through their student health record portal. A spokesperson for USC said in a statement today that the school is committed to further supporting the student body with future services and programming.
0: President Trump is flying into L.A. today. We sent our reporter, Rebecca Katz, to LAX for the Air Force One landing. Rebecca, is the president here yet?
5: Hi, Waylon. He is not. I'm out here on the tarmac at LAX. Um, Air Force One was supposed to land about half an hour ago. I'm next to uh, some family and friends who are sporting red MAGA baseball caps.
0: And what's the president doing here in Los Angeles?
5: So the president is on a whirlwind tour of the West Coast. In fact, he's only in L.A. for four hours. He's expected to meet sports and marketing executive Casey Wasserman, who's going to brief the president on L.A.'s 2028 Olympic plans. Then the president is off to a fundraising event at the Montage Hotel in Beverly Hills. And something interesting, uh, Waylon, Los Angeles County had the second largest individual donor population in the U.S., raising nearly $3 million for Trump in 2016. And Beverly Hills specifically, specifically the zip code 900067, because the larger Beverly Hills area has more than that one zip code, raised more than $400,000 for Trump in that first election. And Beverly Hills was one of the only areas in L.A. County that voted red.
1: Mm, But, Rebecca, isn't this only Trump's fourth visit to Southern California since his first term began?
5: It is, Michaela. In fact, at this point in Obama's presidency, he had already made nine visits to L.A. But as you may know, Trump has had contentious relations with the historically blue state of California. And he's bumped heads with L.A.'s mayor, Garcetti, specifically over the city's status as a sanctuary city and L.A.'s policies towards immigrants.
1: And what's he up to? Where is he going next? Well, Trump has a packed
5: schedule. He's expected to meet with the founder of Oracle, Larry Ellison, at his home in Rancho Mirage, which is just outside of Palm Desert, for another fundraiser tomorrow. And it won't be a quiet affair there. In the sleepy town of just 18,000, local supporters and two anti-Trump groups are expected to demonstrate. And from there, he's off to Arizona and then Colorado. And on Friday, he'll be holding a rally in Nevada at the Las Vegas Convention Center, just ahead of the Democratic caucuses. For Annenberg Media, live from LAX, I'm Rebecca Kass.
1: Thank you so much, Rebecca.
5: Thank you.
1: Billionaire presidential contender Michael Bloomberg will take the Democratic debate stage for the first time tomorrow night in Las Vegas. To qualify, Bloomberg needed a minimum amount of support nationwide, and he got it. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour poll shows Bloomberg with 19 nationwide. This puts him in second place behind Senator Bernie Sanders. Bloomberg skipped earlier debates by self-funding his campaign and focusing on upcoming primaries in states with more delegates. News organizations estimate that he has spent over $400 million since announcing his candidacy, candidacy in November.
0: Bloomberg's rise in the polls and debut on the debate stage are expected to prompt attacks from his rivals. The five other Democrats on stage are likely to press Bloomberg on his massive campaign spending, allegations of sexual harassment, and the stop-and-frisk policy championed as mayor of New York City. The policy has been called racist, and Bloomberg has apologized for its excesses. Early voting has already begun for the Nevada caucuses, which will take place this Saturday. Today, a Bloomberg campaign spokeswoman announced that its billionaire would sell his company, if he's elected president. And the Boy Scouts of America filed for bankruptcy today. The group faces hundreds of sex abuse lawsuits, and thousands of former scouts say they were molested by leaders and scoutmasters in the past few decades. The group has issued a statement saying it, quote, cares deeply about all victims of abuse and sincerely apologizes to anyone who was harmed during the time in scouting. And that bankruptcy will, quote, provide equitable compensation to all victims while maintaining the Boy Scout of America's important mission.
1: But the lawyers say that by declaring bankruptcy, the Boy Scouts will reduce their payouts to victims and reduce their exposure to future liabilities. Charlotte Phillip reports.
6: The Boy Scouts of America filed for Chapter 11 protection in the Bankruptcy Court of Delaware. The filing gives the group time to see if they'll be able to continue. Thousands of people have complained about abuse they suffered as scouts, and many more are expected to come forward. It's important to note that only the national branch of the Boy Scouts has filed for bankruptcy, so regional and individual troops will likely keep working normally, including the LA branch, which released a statement to Annenberg Media saying that they don't expect any changes to the day-to-day activities of their Boy Scout troops. The bankruptcy court that will hear this case is likely to temporarily halt the current suits against the Scouts and set a deadline for filing new claims. Reese Ringo is a USC junior and an Eagle Scout. He says that he enjoyed his time with the organization, but he's glad that these lawsuits might help make amends.
0: Obviously, something like that cuts
7: in two directions. On the one hand, I loved my time in Boy Scouts, and I'm sad that the organization has to go through something like that. But on the other hand, I'm glad that the victims that this money is going to of sexual abuse like are getting some form of reparation, at least.
6: The National Organization of the Boy Scouts of America says it plans to continue its work for, quote, many years to come. For Annenberg Media, I'm Charlotte Phillip.
1: After returning from Hong Kong early last semester due to the pro-democracy protests, some students in USC's World Bachelor in Business, or WBB, program were supposed to go back there this spring. The return to Hong Kong was called off due to fears of coronavirus. Anushka Srivastava is one of these WBB students. She's back at USC and spoke with us about her experience and how WBB coordinators handled the situation.
8: They just thought that, you know, our safety is first priority and they decided to switch to an online mode of um, education until things get better again.
1: Srivastava says that when the students were sent home, the unpredictability of the situation made her uneasy and it was hard to leave Hong Kong early.
8: I think it's a mixed feeling. Um, In the very beginning, I was a little um, upset and um, just scared about the entire situation, um, just because there was a lot of ambiguity and um, everything was very
1: confusing and things got overwhelming. But now she says she accepts the situation and that taking classes from home has allowed her to spend time with her family. Due to the cancellation of the spring program in Hong Kong and the time difference with Los Angeles, the WBB students are taking online classes that start later than when most USC students get out of class each day and end when most students are fast asleep. I really
8: hope things get better back in Hong Kong and uh,
1: hopefully we can go back and continue our experience there. Srivastava says that it's been a challenging time for the WBB students, but they still hope to return to Hong Kong, and it's important for the group to stay positive. My classes have now
8: been moved to uh, the later half of the day, so most of my classes begin around 9 p.m. LA time, um, and some even go up until 3 a.m.
0: listening to From Where We Are. It's 13 minutes after the hour. I'm Waylon Cunningham.
1: And I'm Michaela Stevens. Coming up, a set of feature stories on diverse cultural heritage and history. For reporter Nancy Guan, dumplings are more than just a reminder of home. She tells us that they also carry with them the story of her parents' childhoods and their immigration to the US.
4: We're on the part in the in the mixing
9: bowl. That's my mom preparing Chinese to rocks. make her homemade Chinese dumplings. It's a dish that she's always made while I was growing up, and it's something that always seemed synonymous with my culture, the meat. But it's also one of the many things that I never really bothered to learn. A lot of the things in my culture, like the food, my language, and how my parents even moved to the U.S., I feel like I don't have a real grasp of. So, while making her dumplings, my mom starts telling me about when she and my dad first came to America.
4: Those days, it's hard, you know. We don't have much money, we don't have money, we just came to U.S. to go to school.
9: My parents first settled in Kansas City in 1993. My dad had $300 in a stipend for school, while my mom worked in a restaurant to support them both. One of the first things my mom remembers
4: was the food. So we often eat uh, the bread, you know. When it's on a discount, we buy those. We eat uh, lots of chicken drums. She starts telling me that
9: when they first came to the U.S., they had no problem eating American food.
4: I like McDonald's. I like donuts. I like the cinnamon buns. When I saw those on TV commercial, wow, I think that's gonna be taste good. But one day in the middle of all those delicious chicken drums
9: and cinnamon buns, my mom witnessed something strange. She sees my dad in the middle of his dorm kitchen rolling some dough. He, he's making
4: dumplings.
9: He's just sitting there by himself making dumplings.
4: Maybe that time he's a so miss. he decided to make himself. I was so surprised. But it's just not looking good, right?
9: In a way, I always knew my dad loved dumplings, but this just made me realize how much he loved them. He'd always buy a bunch of frozen dumplings from the market and store them in our freezer, so my brothers and I could never complain there was nothing to eat. Although I feel like I've had enough dumplings to last a lifetime, my parents couldn't get enough in their childhood. My mom starts talking about a period of time in
4: China. It was a time before the
9: economic reform in 1979, when the standard of living in China was much lower. For my parents' families who lived in small farming villages in Shandong, China, it was especially tough.
4: You sell the wheat, you sell the rice, You cannot leave those good things for yourself to eat, because then uh, selling for more money.
9: Back then, ingredients like wheat and flour were harder to come by, making food like buns, rice, and dumplings that much more special.
4: When we were young, you are so looking forward to it, to those special days.
9: Although I've always had a vague understanding that my parents grew up in an entirely different environment from mine, they never bothered to paint a picture of that childhood, until now.
4: I remember the steam, the steam is still rising from the pile of dumplings. I miss the big family at, uh, at China. Yeah, that's uh, I miss the most. Not only food, uh, food, uh, yeah, it's okay, but uh, I miss the family there.
9: For my mom and dad, dumplings are a connection to the past, to a time when food was scarce, but the feeling of family and togetherness was abundant. After hearing my mom's dumpling story, I wanted to create
4: my own. Keep turning the dough so it's uh, gonna roll evenly on every side, you know, the circling, circling roll. Wait, what? Like the speed that you are making
9: the
4: dumpling. Our oh, family goodness, starving.
9: So it's probably going to take some practice for me to get it right. But if my dad found a way to make lopsided dumplings in his dorm in the middle of Kansas, I have no excuse.
4: He loves dumplings more than anyone else. <laughs>
9: for Annenberg Media, I'm Nancy Guan.
1: Now it's time for Trojan Tales. Tomorrow marks the 78th anniversary of Executive Order 9066, which forced Japanese Americans on the West Coast into internment camps during World War II. When the order was given all those years ago, USC students were among those who were detained. Reporter Evan Jacoby tells the story of two of these students who went to USC back in 1942.
0: There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger.
10: That's President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1941, the day after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. The President asked Congress to declare war on Japan, and in February of 1942, he signed Executive Order 9066, which forced Japanese-American citizens on the West Coast into internment camps. 121 of those detained Nisei, or second-generation citizens, were students at USC. Setsuko Matsunaga Nishi was one of them.
2: When the orders did come down, I can remember my father picking us up and taking us home.
10: That's from an interview Miss Nishi gave to the University of Massachusetts in 2011. She's since passed away, but in February of 1942, she was just a junior at USC.
2: Well, when the war began, The President von Klanschmann called an assembly, and he said that uh, on this campus, we will respect and treat with decency all of our our Japanese students. So that was quite a nice thing.
10: Later that month, she and her family were forcefully relocated to the Santa Anita Detention Center.
2: Uh, And we were assigned a room about no bigger than this for the six of us. So we had the, those army cots lined up side by side.
10: Being forced out of her education was especially crushing to her parents and other first generation, or issei, Japanese Americans.
5: To that generation, going to school was one of the most important things.
10: That's Tim Yuge, who works at the Annenberg School.
5: That's why they worked hard, whether it be housekeeping, um, doing menial labor, working the farms. Uh, that's what they needed to do, because they wanted to make sure their families went to school.
10: Yuge's uncle, Hitoshi Sagishima, was also a USC student who was interned during World War II. It's
5: one of those things that the Japanese he says and niseis, the Japanese word is shikata ganai. It's like, it just can't be helped, so they accepted it.
10: In 2012, more than 70 years after his internment, USC awarded an honorary degree to Mr. Sagashima.
5: I know that he was very proud that he was able to at least get something from USC.
10: Honorary degrees were also awarded to Miss Nishi and nine other Nisei students. For Annenberg Media, I'm Evan Jacoby.
7: Ampersand.
0: Ampersand is Annenberg Radio's arts and culture segment. First generation kids in the United States can feel torn between two worlds, caught between their cultures of origin and the pressures to be American. Ampersand's Victoria Alejandro looks at how washing the car with her dad as a kid helped her build a bridge between her Caribbean and American cultures.
7: Washing the car with my dad was one of my favorite things to do as a kid. Mm. Our soundtrack was this album called Tropical Tribute to the Beatles. It's a collection of Caribbean music stars singing Beatles songs that came out in the mid-90s. Celia Cruz's version of Obladi Oblada was so dynamic, so salsa, that I didn't realize it was a Beatles song for years. I was born and raised in California, but my family came here from Puerto Rico in the 80s. My dad has always been a huge Beatles fan, but he says... With the Latin rhythm and music, everything is much better because you can dance. <laughs> and he would always play all these rock stations in the car. Well, I want you to expose you and your sister to, to, to different music because they represent different culture. So I grew up with the two worlds my dad gave me, bands like the Beatles and salsa music. This is a pretty common story among first-generation Latinos growing up in the U.S. We blend the cultures of our parents with the American experience. Finding culture becomes an act of creation.
2: Uh, You listen to Celia's version of Obladi Oblada,
7: That's Josh Kuhn, whose research focuses on the intersection of music, culture, and politics. He is currently the director of USC Annenberg's School for Communication and Journalism. She's not
2: doing. It's not a cover. She's transforming it. She's naming herself in the song. She's making little jokes. It's totally transforming the song. (laughs) Beatles are kind of uh, kind of an interesting like gateway gateway drug for like first and second generation Latino kids in the US because it's like like with your dad throughout Latin America there's a whole generation of of Latin American bands who were doing Beatles covers
7: bands like Los Tijuana 5 and their cover of baby you can drive my car For a lot of Latinos growing up in the U.S., there's a pressure to assimilate. There's this desire to fit in, but there is also a genuine love for the new music you're discovering. Music that's nothing like what your parents play at home. And you don't have to choose between the two.
2: Some of those kids who become musicians find ways of bridging the music that they listen to at home um, with the music that they want to listen to um, in the, you know, in the contemporary scene and bring those two together. Stuff that might be inspired by that, but it totally transforms it and helps us create uh, music of our own and musical identities for our own.
7: So contemporary musicians like the Marias, Gaina, and Chicano Batman. They're forging their musical identities by blending those musical influences. This is a practice that has happened for centuries, across history when people are displaced, sometimes forcibly or violently removed from their cultures. And it's a practice that can use music to create a sense of identity for those who no longer fully belong to one place or another.
0: Open this, um. please.
7: And it's such a relief to realize, as a first-generation kid, that you don't have to choose between those two worlds, that you have the tools to define your culture yourself. For Annenberg Media, I'm Victoria Alejandro.
0: For more stories like this, visit Ampersand online at AmpersandLA.com. Yeah, that's really incredible. I mean, I've heard from a lot of people that grew up in those two cultures. There, there can be a bit of a, a tension between them. Do you know anyone like that, Michaela?
1: Yeah, I definitely have a bunch of friends who feel that way. I grew up moving around abroad um, in kind of, I went to international schools for expats, and there were a lot of students who fell between two cultures. Oh, where at? Where did I live?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Singapore, and Beijing. Wow.
0: Quite the, quite the resume. <laughs> Did you ever have any any kind of feeling like you were an American kid living in a, in a foreign world? I mean, any kind of reverse of what we just heard?
1: Honestly, not really. I, I don't know, I feel like I kind of lived in a bubble, if that makes sense.
0: because mm, a lot of the students were also children of expats?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Would you all listen to American music together or would you kind of go out and try to explore local flavor?
1: You know, a little bit of both. My dad was definitely into kind of going in and exploring where we lived.
0: Before we say goodbye, a quick reminder that today is the last day to register to vote in the March 3rd California primary. If you're not already registered, go to lavote.net to register now. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Zazu Lippert, Rebecca Katz, and Isaiah Murtau produced today's show.
1: Yuki Leong is our technical operator, and Derek Renfro composed our theme music.
0: Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more news, be sure to download Annie, Annenberg's news app. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Annenberg Media. I'm Waylon Cunningham.
1: And I'm Michaela Stevens. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again next time for From Where We Are.